This is The Thomas Guide, your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas, political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Leaked documents from the GOP outlines their theory of impeachment defense in a core memo to GOP leadership. I'll get into that and more in this episode of The Thomas Guide. Welcome back to another episode of The Thomas Guide. I'm your host, John Thomas. All right, let's get into it. Lead story is a memo was leaked by Republican top Republican brass that outlines their their defense against impeachment. The the memo that's been distributed to high level Republicans in on the three House committees that are conducting the the Trump Ukraine Ukraine investigation. They've settled on four key pieces of evidence that they claim is are going to be the 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 secret bullets to undermining Democrats arguments for why the president should be impeached and ultimately removed from office. Uh, This is significant because the first public hearings on of the impeachment inquiry are going to take place this week. And the memo shows how committee members are going to slice up the Democrats framing of the allegations. So far, the only attacks we've really heard against the Democrats and their witch hunt has been have been process attacks. Uh, the process hasn't been fair. It's behind closed doors. Um, this is a, a an impeachment in search of a crime. All of those things I actually think are fair hits. But the Republicans now are stepping up their attacks to make them more um, substantive. So here's what the memo said in terms of these four uh, pieces of evidence that they call in their memo fatal to the allegations that Trump used military aid to pressure Ukraine to invest, investigate his political opponents. First factoid, uh, quote, the July 25th call summary, uh, the best evidence of the conversation that this is the one that Trump released shows no conditionality or evidence of pressure. That's point one. That is true. There is no literal pressure. There's no actual pressure at the the conversation was released. And this is what I've maintained is the problem Democrats have is there's no smoking gun to be revealed because the president released the gun within 24 hours of the whistleblowing accusation. And there was no hard there there. And so uh, there's no going to be no aha moment as we go through other than a circus. Point number two, they want to make president Zelensky and President Trump have both said there was no pressure on the call. That's also true. Both of them have confirmed the same story. No pressure. Point number three, the Ukrainian government was not aware of a hold on U.S. security assistance at the time of the July 25th call. That's also a fair point, which, which is, if you want to elaborate that, that on, is if there was this quid pro quo. Uh, why did the president Zelensky say he felt no pressure? And why did the Ukrainian government say they had no idea that there was pressure? So I suppose if there was a quid pro quo, Trump did a pretty miserable job 
at pressure, <laughs> pressuring the Ukrainian government to, to that end. And point number four, President Trump met with President Zelensky and U.S. security uh, assistants flowed to Ukraine in September of 2019, both of which occurred without the Ukraine investigating President Trump's political rivals. So it, you know, I, I suppose that's a fair point, which is, look, if there really was a quid pro, pro quo, why did Trump release the aid? Um, and why didn't he hold out for an investigation? That's a fair point. What I had heard actually happened was Trump didn't want to give the aid on a more broad principle. He doesn't think the U.S. government should be giving all these millions and millions of dollars to loads of foreign countries that, quite frankly, don't deserve it. He wasn't going to give the aid until he got a call from either it was Lindsey Graham or it was some senior senator. Oh, no, it wasn't. Uh, it was, I think it was Ben Sass. And Sass called and said, Mr. President, you need to release the aid because if you don't, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats in the Senate are literally going to defund the Pentagon. And that'll have far reaching implications to our national security for the United States. You have to release the aid uh, because they're playing politics and will hurt the United States if you don't. That's when Trump in September 2019, released the AIDS. That's how I heard it play out. It'd be interesting to see if that story also gets revealed in this coming week. So you heard it here first. Um, I'm sure we're going to be talking about it tomorrow and the following day. Let's see how Jim Jordan and other Republicans can stick to this messaging. But I actually think it's, it's pretty, those are pretty compelling pieces combined with the process uh, being rigged and unfair. And it's so funny how the Democrats' language has changed. Originally, when this whole supposed scandal broke, the Democrats loved it because they said the scandal was so digestible. It's so cut and dry. And now the Democrats are complaining, saying, this is too convoluted. You should never uh, use, uh, use a term like quid pro quo and expect average Americans to really understand what's going on. We need more time. We've got to explain it to the American people. It's too complicated. We've got to distill it down to the essence of, of the matter. And why are they sw switching their rhetoric? It's because the polling is now, the outrage has kind of been um, digested by the American public and numbers are shifting back overwhelmingly in Trump's favor, but they're leaning against impeachment uh, and the Democrats are upset about it. So of course they got to blame other uh, other forces. Well, it's too sophisticated. Americans don't understand it. No, I think Americans understand it just fine. It's just for all of the hoopla. There's no there there, right? They've got other priorities other than a transcript where a president had an inarticulately worded phone call with a leader. And as we talked about on yesterday's podcast, supposed quid pro quos are done all the time. In fact, even the leading Democrats in 2020 have bragged about the kind of quid pro quos that they would exercise if they were president to help their political agendas. That's what you do when you're an elected official. But of course, Democrats are impeaching in search of a crime. Uh, that's what's going on here, if we're being honest. All right, next topic. Joe Biden uh, last night did a CNN town hall. Again, I watched it so you didn't have to. It wasn't that exciting. Biden gave his answers are very long winded. And quite frankly, we're just all fatigued 
of watching these damn town halls. So I watched it and there was one thing I enjoyed that I wanted to play for you where Biden was actually attacking Elizabeth Warren's elitist attitude during a CNN town hall. And I actually thought it was his best moment of the night. In fact, maybe his best moment of the entire campaign. Too bad, you know, the audience and the viewership isn't there like on a debate night. But I thought Biden made a get off my lawn, the trust the individual versus big government, good argument. But the problem with this argument, it sounds like a Republican. I mean, that's what working class folks and regular Americans uh, can relate to. But that's not where the intensity of the Democratic primary field is. So while a guy like you'll notice there's no applause when he's going through this. But he also but he's highlighting not only is he doing a good job here, he's highlighting why Elizabeth Warren, quite frankly, it would have such a hard time in a general because of that elitist attitude. But it's not he calls it elitist. I call it that big government. Too. It's that big government knows better than the individual. Uh, let's roll the clip and then we'll analyze. What do you mean? Oh, Where'd what, that come from? What specifically is elitist? about how she's pursuing Medicare for all. The attitude that we know better than ordinary people what's in their interest. I know more than you. Let me tell you what to do. And it wasn't she's elitist. The attitude is elitist. That people can't make up their own minds. You like your health insurance, but you shouldn't like your health insurance. You should have to give that up. I'm going to demand you not have that. We're going to give you something better. I like, I know what I want. So that is an attitude that says, okay, you're telling me it's my way or the highway. And it's not about her. It's about the attitude out there. The attitude that we know best. You do it my way. Where I come from, growing up in a middle class neighborhood, the last thing I liked is people telling my family and me what we should know, what we should believe, as if somehow we weren't informed. That we just because we didn't have money, we weren't knowledgeable. I resent that. And I wasn't talking about her. I was talking about the attitude that if you don't agree with me, get in the other party. I'm more of a Democrat from my shoe sole to my ears than about anybody running in this party. OK, including, her? Been, including everybody. OK, one thing I've never had to wonder about is what I believed and where my ideal, my ideology was and where I come from and why I'm in this and why I'm fighting It's because of the people like I grew up with, many of whom, in fact, didn't have college degrees, many of whom, most of the people I grew up with, their parents never went to college. Most of my generation were the first in our families to go to college, but they were as smart, as decent, as honorable and as committed as anybody else. But they get left behind. That's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the need to make have more power unions. People don't they don't respect anything until you very compelling argument there. And you see how he shifted towards, I'm a good Democrat. I'm the best Democrat on the stage uh, of any of them. I'm the most Democratic of them all. Well, I suppose he's been around the longest. He's been a partisan the longest. And then he shifts toward the union message, which uh, all of these things that not only is that, I think fundamentally it's where Joe's comfortable, but that's his lane. I mean, that's, that's the, that's where he's trying to go after the non-college educated blue collar uh, Democrat. 
the one that isn't buying this Green New Deal stuff, that isn't woke, that it doesn't self-describe as progressive. Uh, so it's good for him to use Elizabeth Warren as a foil because attacking her doesn't hurt him because they're not they're not in the same lanes. So they're both uh, utilizing each other uh, for gain there. But I I thought it was a good argument. The trouble is this, Joe, is that this isn't what your party stands for. Your party is that of vilifying those if you don't if they don't get in line and agree with you. name calling those when they don't agree with you. that the only solution is a top down having big government control. Tell us what we can and can't do what we whether we can drink sodas, the kinds of foods we can eat, uh, the uh, uh, how we can raise our children, what can be taught in, you know, in the classroom. It is uh, uh, whether or not we can own a gun, what, uh, uh, whether or not uh, we can smoke, um, how we build our houses. I mean, you name it. It's all about, in fact, not Joe Biden's version. It's about big government telling us explicitly what we can and can't do. So uh, good argument, good execution, out of touch with the Democratic primary electorate. But I, I thought it was a it was a good moment. And he has a way of delivering some of these messages, especially when he's sitting by, when he has seven minutes to run and he's not getting interrupted by a moderator or fellow debaters. He actually has a very endearing, commonsensical way of, uh, likable way of, of describing these messages. But the problem is it's just not sticking as much as you would think it should certainly in the early states that are probably going to dictate this primary. So um, interesting how the races evolve where he's openly attacking Elizabeth Warren and he's doing it on almost a daily basis. And it shows that he no longer thinks he's the front runner because you never attacked him. That he is attacking Elizabeth Warren because Joe knows Joe is in trouble. And we're going to get into it at the end of the podcast today why I think Joe is seriously in trouble, uh, that his, he is going to have a bad week. First, it was Bloomberg's potential entry that can cut Biden right to his core. Now we're going to get into somebody else. But, but um, uh, before we get to that, that wasn't a good enough tease to stick around to the end of the podcast. There was um, Don Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle, his girlfriend. Uh, Kimberly's a former Fox News host on, on the show, The Five. Uh, also. Gavin Newsom's ex-wife, uh, interestingly enough, Don Jr. and Kimberly were, were in California, partic- uh, specifically for this instance, they were at UCLA promote. They were doing a turning a joint Turning Points USA event uh, promoting Don Jr.'s new book called Triggered. Don's on his book tour, and he's bringing Kimberly around to to do signings and and promote the book. So uh, he was doing this at UCLA. It was a good sized crowd. But he ended up having a problem where he was getting uh, booed, not not so much booed, but screamed at and heckled in a way by folks in the crowd. So much so that Kimberly had to regulate. Let's see what she had to say, and I'll <laughs> I'll I'll give you my thoughts on it. No, it's because you're not making your parents proud by being rude and disruptive and discourteous. We are happy to answer a question. Same rules. Let me tell you something. 
because you're impressing no one here to get a date in person. So Kimberly had to regulate. Um, and look, I don't I, I, I empathize uh, with those two. When you have such a large and unruly crowd, particularly with the book tour being called Triggered, um, you're going to get people, whether they're they're purposely to heckle or others that are not going to play ball. And the microphone setup, I actually watched the clip. The microphone setup wasn't great to begin with. So it got out of hand. Uh, and of course, the liberal media has now pounced on it saying Don Jr. was booed by his own fans and heckled and couldn't. No, it's called just crowd control. It happens at, at any big rally. Uh, and Kimberly tried to take control, but it's honestly, it's very, very tough at those big events because Don Jr.'s a, a big draw of both uh, supporters and detractors and people are making all sorts of noise. And of course, this it's not a calm conversation. Don's there to deliver the red meat. That's what he's there to do. He's there to um, uh, give sound bites, deliver hype and red meat. So, of course, he's going to get a crowd worked up, which can cause these things to happen. All right, to the to the big story that I think we're going to be talking about for the rest of the week. That is, you know how we said uh, we were discussing whether or not Bloomberg gets in the race. It's still yet to be seen, but we're hearing that there is yet another Democrat of significance who is going to announce this week. That is former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. He even called Joe Biden on Sunday night to give him the heads up that he was likely going to get in the race. This is a big deal for a couple reasons. First, it's late, getting late in the game. Why would Deval Patrick, who happens to be a African-American, why would he run? Well, it's for one reason. It's because he thinks that Joe Biden ain't gonna cut it. That Biden is showing weakness. And the reports I'm hearing is that the Wall Street class, the 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 by uh, the uh, Obama Obama donor coalition were urging Duvall to run because they're scared to death of Elizabeth Warren. And they just simply don't think that Joe Biden has what it takes to either win the nomination or win the presidency. So they've been pushing him now. Duvall ruled out a White House run nearly a year ago, announcing in December that the, quote, cruelty of the process uh, would have a negative impact on him and his family. So he he decided not to run. Of course, he waited, he waited, he waited, and he's being urged to run now, particularly by Barack Obama's uh, inner circle. Keep in mind, Duvall was an early backer of Obama in 2008. In fact, um, a lot of people were looking at Duvall Patrick as kind of the next Obama. He is, uh, he's viewed as progressive. He can attract uh, white liberals in a place like Massachusetts. Remember, he served as governor of Massachusetts from 2007 to 2000. In fact, he'd become the fourth politician from Massachusetts to run for president this cycle alone. Um, so he, he would have to make a decision if he were going to run. He would need to do it this week because the deadline to get on the ballot in New Hampshire is this Friday. 
So he needs to get in. Now, the problem is, for I think just logistically, there's no way he wins Iowa. Uh, because Iowa is a caucus state, and it really is fundamentally about organization. And if you haven't been organizing in that state, it's very difficult. Um, it's very, very difficult to make a showing. And I don't think Duvall could do it. So New Hampshire, he might be able to. It shares, I believe, the Boston uh, media market where Duvall used to get a lot of coverage. Uh, I haven't seen polling with Duvall's name in New Hampshire, but I would imagine if Duvall's going to run that he has some name awareness and recognition in that area that he can build upon. So Duvall will do, I think his path would be try to win, lose Iowa, perhaps not even qualify. Um, win, come back, win New Hampshire, win South Carolina, and, um, and then whipsaw into, into Super Tuesday and, uh, or boomerang into Super Tuesday and win it all. That would be the path. Now here's, that, that, that actually seems like a reasonable path. But here's several of the problems. First, funding. Okay, let's, let's assume that the Obama coalition's donors back him. Well, Biden has a lot of those, and he's still in the race. Buttigieg has some of those, and he's still in the race. Um, I don't know that Duvall could put together the resources that he would need. Now, granted, he doesn't have to endure such a long effort. That's some benefit of announcing late is you don't have to burn for so many months prior that all the other candidates have had to endure. Um, but I still think it would be tough financially. Now, maybe Duvall has super PACs lined up, so he thinks that that will give him the air support he needs. He needs to qualify for the debates. How does he get enough do small donors to qualify? I imagine he has a plan, but that's going to be certainly a hurdle. He needs to get into the, he needs to be polling nationally, uh, probably above four to 6%. I assume he could do that, but that's not an, that's not an instant uh, gimme. But here's the nightmare scenario. If De Duvall is running, if, uh, um, if Biden is running, if Booker is running, and if Kamala goes all the way to South Carolina, which I don't think she will, but if she did, the argument is the African-American base, that, that rule of gravity that every, every Democrat primary nominee must have, could be split so thin, allowing Warren to easily just win Iowa, win New Hampshire, win South Carolina. Lights out, people. Super Tuesday, she's the nominee. So Duvall could, in fact, if he picks up steam, guarantee a Warren nomination unless Bloomberg doesn't run, Biden drops out, Booker drops out, and Harris drops out. That's why I love this sport, because no one knows. I think there are some pretty good bets that, uh, that Harris won't make it to South Carolina, but all those others? Uh, comes down to stubbornness, money, um, hard to say at this point, hard to say, but sources are saying that it's damn good bet that Duvall will announce before the end of the week 
because of the New Hampshire strategy that I just laid out. So I think that's what we're all going to be talking about. Does a Deval Patrick scare away a Mike Bloomberg? Good question. Probably not. Because I don't think Bloomberg gives a rip about New Hampshire or Iowa because he figures he'll just be able to cut a major check to compete on Super Tuesday and be competitive in South Carolina. In fact, I think uh, Bloomberg thinks the longer he can wait, the better off he is. Now, if Bloomberg files for New Hampshire this Friday, we know that he truly is preserving the option to run. So that's what I'm watching. This contest, <laughs> just when you thought things were settling out, and it really was between Buttigieg, Sanders, Warren, and Biden. That's where this race was wanting to be, and now you're starting to see some potential plot twists. So we'll be watching that closely as the week evolves. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Thomas Guide. Of course, I got a new email address. If you want to shoot me an email, it's podcast at theteaguide.com or on Twitter at the Thomas Guide. You can always tweet me or follow, find me on Facebook. If you guys have a topic that you want me to cover that I did shoot, you know, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.